All right, Jeremiah chapter 13. The last hour, we did not finish chapter 12, but we did pretty good. We'll read a kind of a summary of most of the chapter here in a minute. Um, we've now increased 100% in our attendance, so that's good. We're up to two. That's good. All right, we're now a mega church. All right, so here is our review briefly of chapter 12. Here we go. All right. Um, just briefly, uh, so in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse, verses 1 through 4, Jeremiah struggles as he sees the wicked prosper, and he called out the Lord to bring them down. We, ta- we worked through that in the first hour, kind of talking about uh, you know, God's character versus, according to revelation, not according to circumstances, us being honest with the, the reality of life, understanding God's sovereignty, um, being honest with uh, our feelings and emotions, us seeing ourselves as being wicked versus just other people. So we talked a lot about that, but that's how the chapter, chapter 12 began. As I'm struggling, God was about to hand the Judeans over to their enemies and they would experience devastation. That seems to cover chapter 12, 5 through 13, which we did not cover, but at least you can kind of read it and have an understanding of what's going on. Uh, nevertheless, he had held out hope of restoration in chapters 12, 14 through 17. And we did at the very beginning of the hour try to kind of read quickly through some of those verses or at least some of them. But the main thing in chapter 12, 14 through 17, once again, we have kind of this promise of restoration and promise of land. Now, the only problem is we could get into a whole discussion. At the end of chapter 12, it kind of seems like, hey, if you will obey, then I'll bring you back. Then I'll give you the land, which we know they never obey. So in a sense, they never get the land. But when we get to chapter 31 and we have a promise of a new covenant, the new covenant is not if you do this. The new covenant is I am going to do this and I'm going to take care of everything. He he doesn't even tell them they have to do anything. He just says, I'm going to work and this is what's going to happen. And we know that the promises of that new covenant have never been fulfilled. So therefore, we believe that new covenant is for Israel and that it has not been fulfilled or even really put into effect yet because all of those promises have not happened. So we talked in great detail about all of that, I think, last week or Wednesday or whatever day it was. uh, We talked in great detail about that. Now, we come to good old chapter 13. Good old chapter 13. And this chapter is somewhat interesting just the way it's broken down. I do not know why the study guide decided to jump from 12 to 18 it really bothers me that it jumps from 12 to 18 because of all the chapters you think 13 would be the one you would cover because in some ways it you could say it's the most fun it's the most interesting in a lot of ways and because hermeneutically it uh, some of the things we talked about some of the hermeneutical issues in the book we have kind of the type of language that's being used here. So in chapter 13, just let's just kind of try it this way. I'm going to go with one commentary. All right, let's see if we can figure this out, all right? Look at Jeremiah chapter 13. I will ask these questions, all right? So you're going to have to answer these, all right? Jeremiah 13, when you start reading verses 1, 2, and 3, what, what is this object that you see, this object that's being talked about? It's a girdle, Right? Some refer to it as a sash. Other translations have it as, let's see, how does this translation translate it? Uh, a, a, a linen undergarment. 
So it's a, it's a garment. We'll just call it a garment, all right? Because sash, girdle, linen undergarment, everyone's got these. So from chapter, chapter 13, just so that you'll notice, chapter 13, most likely verses 1 through 11, you can look down to verse 11 and see if you still think it's referring to this garment. 13, 1 through 11 is about a garment. A linen belt, all right? So, so everyone has a different way of describing it, okay? But we'll try to figure out exactly what it is. I don't, what it is, what it was used for may be more important than, how, than understanding what it looks like, but okay. So we have a garment. Everybody, everybody good? Do you feel that goes all the way down to verse 11, or do you want to change your outline? We're going to try to create an outline of chapter 13 here is what we're going to kind of do. An impromptu create an outline. You know y'all love when I do this. Okay, so 13, 1 through 11 is about a garment. We're all good with that? All right. Now, what happens in verse 12? Because I got, uh, what's funny is I got two commentaries from the same person and they, they approach it different every single time. All right. What do we have in 12 through 14? All right. Okay, we have a bottle of wine. All right, everybody see that? Everybody see it in verse 12? All right. Uh, Therefore thou shalt speak unto them this word, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, every bottle shall be filled with wine. They shall say unto thee, do we not certainly know that every bottle shall be filled with wine? Then shall thou say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings that sit upon them. But it's talking about bottles. Is that, is that a good way to describe it? Okay. All right. Well, I've got two ways of looking at it. This is how one commentary. All right, you ready? The staggering drunkards. 12 through 14. This one. The bottle. Now, both commentaries written by the same man, okay? So, which is fascinating. All right? So, what do you, what do you want to do here? Do you want to go with the staggering drunkard, or do you want to go with the bottles? The bottles are at least referenced twice, right? So, we'll, we'll just call 12 through 14. The filling is also good, because he does talk about be, being filled. Let's just go 12 through 14. Let's just refer to it as the bottles right now, Okay? Because, because I think if you see, maybe the commentary here, maybe when he wrote this commentary, maybe he's trying to focus on how different objects are used here as object lessons. Because I think what happens here is Jeremiah begins to, this chapter is almost a sermon of object lessons, I think is what happens here, all right? So, uh, so 12 through 14, we have the bottles. What happens in 15? Now we have much, this, okay, we have captivity. Hear ye, okay, I'm going to start in verse 15. Hear ye and give ear, but be, uh, be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God uh, before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble upon the dark mountains. And while you look for light, he turn it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. 
But if you will, if you will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride, and mine eyes shall weep sore and run down with tears, because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. Say unto your king and to your queen, humble yourselves and sit down. Well, they just actually this one just goes to verse fifteen to sixteen. All right, this is where it gets confusing. All right, so just show you how this one handles it. This one, fifteen to twenty-two. They refer to it as the flock, and I don't know if I'm down with that. I know they want to go with this object lesson, but I don't know if I get the flock. Do you get the flock there, 15 to 22? What do you think? Yeah, so I guess it is mentioned there, right? But at the beginning in 15 and 16, we have stumbling, right? Right, but it talks about them stumbling. All right, so one commentary refers us to 15 and 16 as the stumbling traveler or stumbling travelers, plural. This one wants to group 15 to 22 as the flock. Now, of course, they're all just looking for a phrase to try to build, a, you know, build an outline. And I understand that when you're doing outlining. I'm going to go with the stumbling. I'm just going to call it the stumbling, all right? Uh, we're going to call that 15 to 16, only because if you go all the way down to 22, you're going to miss another one. You're going to miss another, I think, object lesson. But he's got the idea of 15 to 16 as the idea almost as Judah is they're on their way, but they can't really make it on their way because they're doing what? They're stumbling. And why are they stumbling? Because they are disobeying. All right, so we're just going to call that. So what do we have, verses 1 through 11? We have, a gar- we have a garment, yes? Okay, next, 12 through 14, bottles. We're going to just call them the bottles, all right? Okay, we're calling them the bottles. Next, we're just going to call this the stumbling travelers, 15 through 16. I know it's not perfect, but for outlining sake, we'll do that. Now, when we get down into it, guess what? We may change our mind completely. What do you have in verse 21? Verse 21. What will thou say when he shall punish thee? For thou hast taught them to be captains, and as a chief over thee shall not sorrows take thee as a woman in travail or a woman in labor. We're going to call verse 21 a woman in labor. We're just going to make it... Uh, because what they're trying to do is show you that in this chapter, something interesting is happening. He's using all these kind of object lessons. So all the commentaries focus on all of these interesting object lessons. Uh, they, uh, This one, uh, this it depends on your commentary. What we could do, 17 through 20, let's look at it. But if thou wilt not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride. Mine eyes shall weep sore and run down with tears because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. There we could put 17 to 20. Let's put the flock. Right? Because that's where the the flock is mentioned twice there. Yeah, 17 to 20. So we'll call 17 to 20 the flock. That's very good. 21 will be the woman in labor. Right? So let's break this down. All right? Now, so what we're doing is we're kind of following the commentaries and then we just diverted from all commentaries, all right? So here we go. Verses 1 through 11, we have a garment. 
12 through 14, bottles. 15 through 16, stumbling travelers. 17 through 20, the flock. 21, woman and labor. Now, are we done with the chapter? No, what do we have left? 22 through 27. Let's read 22 through 27 and see what we can do with this. And if thou will say in thine heart, wherefore cometh these things upon me? For the greatness of thine iniquity are thy skirts discovered and thy hills made bare. All right. How does, let's look at how all the translations handles verse 21. We have skirts and hills. All right. Oh, that's 22. I'm sorry. 22. All right. Okay, skirts and bodies, okay, this translation, and again, that's verse 22, verse 22, and when you ask yourself, why have these things happened to me, it is because of your great guilt that your skirts have been stripped off and your body exposed, so we're just going to call them skirts, and we'll just call it skirts, we'll just refer to skirts, okay, so that will be skirts in verse 22. All right. And then what do we have in verse 23? What do we have in 23? Okay, in 23, we're going to call it the Ethiopian and the leopard. The Ethiopian and the leopard. All right, because what do we have? Literally in verse 23, we have, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots, all right? So we had the Ethiopian and the leopard, and then what do we have in verses 24? And I'm going to go all the way to 27. I think it will work to 27. Maybe we'll have to change it. We got skirts again in 26, I believe. But, um, and <laughs> skirts show up a couple of times. But in verse 20, I mean, at least 24 and 25, at least 24 and 25. What do we have in 24 and 25? What do we have in 24 and 25? The chaff. 24 to 25 is the chaff. That's going to be blown away, right? Right? We have the chaff that's going to be blown away. So that leads us two verses, right? 26 and 27. What do we do in 26 and 27? Therefore I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and thy shame may appear. I have seen thine adulteries and thy uh, names, the lewdness of thy whoredoms, and thine abomination on the hills and the fields, Woe unto thee, O Jerusalem, will thou not be made clean? When shall it once be? So what do you think we should do with verse 26 and 27? Because not all the commentaries seem to utterly, completely just ignore 26 and 27. Yeah, both commentaries ignore it. Ignore it. They don't even bother to even try to figure it out. They're like, our, 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 our whole focus breaks down here. Is there kind of an object lesson in 26 to 27? We have skirts again. Right, well, it's almost like this. I think, uh, well, yeah, there's, depending on how we want to look at what's happening here. Um, this one, I will pour, pull your skirts up over your face so that your shame might be seen. So I'm just going to be, let's just, yeah, did we say nudity? I'm just going to go with nudity. I mean, if you're pulling up your skirts over their face, that's, that's exposing them, right? 
So we'll just kind of refer to it as their nudity. Right? We'll just refer to it as nudity. I know it's not the best. Do you have a better, have you got a better idea? Okay, we're just going to go with nudity. So let's go through this. 1 through 11, garment. 12 through 14, bottles. 15 through 16, stumbling travelers. What is it? 17 through 20, flock. 21 through, no, just 21 is the woman in labor. 22 is skirts. 23 is Ethiopian and the leopard. 24 and 25 is the, the chef. 26 and 26 and 27 is, we'll just refer to it as nudity. All right? All of these are very descriptive object lessons. He's taking, he's taking common things, common concepts, and what is he going to do with these common ideas, these common objects? He's going to try to give us a spiritual lesson or a spiritual picture, right? It's like if a pastor is holding up a bottle of water and he's going to use the bottle of water as an object lesson to try to make a spiritual point. He's going to use, think of it this way. He's going to use common objects in order to make spiritual points. Common objects to make spiritual points. What's the benefit of doing that? What's the benefit of doing that from a preaching, teaching, explanation perspective? How does that benefit the hearer? Because sometimes the concept is what? There's a couple of things in preaching. One, the concept has been repeated so much that the concept has become common. Right? So you use an object lesson to change it up. Right? You use the object lesson because you've heard the same point over and over and over. So now you use an object lesson hoping that it will reawaken their awareness of it or maybe even turn on the light bulb. All right? So there's the first thing. To combat almost a, how would we refer to it? Almost a bored, I'm bored with it. I've already heard this so many. I mean, he's, he's repeated himself quite a lot, has he not in Jeremiah? Yeah. To have we not got the point? So now he's going to use an object lesson. So, uh, so the use of the object lesson is to help combat basically people's just apathy, their boredom with the topic. All right. I think that that's a good thing. A second thing it's used for is because sometimes when you're getting spiritual principles across, they may come across kind of vague or hard to really get your hands on. Right. And this puts something tangible, something real in front of you that hopefully will do what? Help you go, oh, now I get it. Now I, now I can. Because I understand that, that kind of situation. So there are hermeneutical reasons for using it. Now, you, now what's the danger of using object lessons? People focus on the thing and, and you're like, what? what? You're not, you missed the whole point. I remember one time, I think Kevin had a friend here, and then I was using some issue about music on compressed files, like on a, I think I held up an iPod or some, some device, and like how when you take music and compress it, then you lose all, you lose all the information, right? Well, that, that teenager, all they could remember is, well, I, I listen to music on my phone. That wasn't the point of that. Like, so the object became the point. And so that's the problem with an object lesson, right? Like, 
And you just kind of go, never mind. What am I doing? I give up, right? Now, but that, that's, it's hard not to do that, right? Because sometimes people, and especially if you say something negative about an object that they like, right? right? You've got to be careful. So you always got to think about, now in this case, Jeremiah, we would say his object lessons are inspired by God. So there's a little difference. The preacher, a preacher's object lessons aren't. So you always have to think, if I use this object, or even if you use an illustration, you've still got to be careful because you can use an illustration about something and someone will get offended and they'll miss the entire point. I mean, I, I, I've gotten emails before and I'm like, I think you missed the point of the entire sermon. But it'll be one illustration, one thing said that'll be negative. Like, you know, if you say, you know, California is, a, you know, this horrible place. Well, then people in California, be, they may miss the point you're trying to make. Because uh, all they heard you is criticize their state, or if you criticize Texas or what, and it's like sometimes you're like, could you see beyond <laughs> the object? The object is to get you to the point. The object isn't the point, right? And, and the same thing will happen. Like a lot of times, I'll be like, if let's say there's some big controversy in the religious world, right? So maybe something with MacArthur or anybody, and I constantly will say this in my podcast. Okay. We're going to use this situation, but it's not about MacArthur. I'm trying to make this greater point. But then I'll get all the, how dare you say something about MacArthur? Did you not hear the beginning of the episode where I said, I'm using this situation to get to the deeper point. But it happens all the time. So in preaching or teaching, the use of object lessons have their benefit especially if you've been repeating the same thing because people will start tuning you out, right? Familiarity breeds you know, contempt. So sometimes you use an object lesson, all of a sudden it's new, right? It's all of a sudden you're like, I've made the same point 50 times. Like I, all of a sudden people are like, that was so good. And you're like, I've made the point for 20 years. What do you mean it's so good? But you use an object lesson, all of a sudden people catch on, okay? It also can be helpful when the concept is vague to make it tangible but there are dangers because sometimes all people will see if the object blinds people from the point then it's better to do what forget the object forget the object and it's hard because in your pre in your mind you're like this works so good this works so like uh, that can happen with a movie you 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 can say oh this movie captures this point so good. And you mention the movie, and it gets immediately what will happen. People are like, how dare you use that movie? That movie, ha-. and they'll complain about something in the movie, and you're like, I know, we, we used to do the same thing. I mean, lots of people have done it. And then you're like, oh, why did I mention that movie? Or if you mention a song, like, it's like, because if people don't care about the point you're making, now they're offended because you mentioned this movie, you mentioned this song. And then, you know, and of course, when a pastor does it, you can see the danger, obviously, right? Because if you, if you have your kids who don't want them to see the movie and the pastor mentions the movie, then the, then the parents like, then the kid's going to say, well, the pastor watched it. And even though that wasn't the pastor's point, right? and so it's like, oh, that's, that's the dangers of preaching. Like you, you, you're trying to convey a point, but everyone else is hearing something different and they're like, how dare you mention that? So, I understand all of those complexities, but Jeremiah goes in. He gets away with it because 
Well, he gets away from it because his object lessons are inspired. Pastors don't get away from it because they're not inspired. They're just our own ideas. And sometimes they happen in a, um, what sometimes people in the pew don't realize is sometimes when you're preaching, the idea comes to you in the middle of preaching, right? It's not like written in the note. And then, you, and then you'll say it and I'll be like, oh, never mind. Okay, forget that I said it. You can just start seeing in people's faces like, never mind. Strike that from the record, okay? I need a do-over. But you, you, there's nothing you can do. All right, so here we go. You ready? Let's start in Jeremiah 13, 1 through 11. Let's see if we can get through this garment, all right, in the few minutes that we have. All right, here we go. Thus saith the Lord God unto me, Go and get thee a linen girdle, put it upon thy loins, and put it not in water. All right. Get a garment, put it on. It's worn next to the skin, and don't put it in water. Now, what is going on? Let's start with a little bit here. Maybe we can find out a little bit about this girdle. I'm going to read from different uh commentaries. Everybody ready? I'm going to start with my study Bible. My study Bible says this. The Lord told Jeremiah to purchase a new girdle. This item of clothing extended from the waist to the thighs. It was made of valuable linen material usually reserved for priests. Now, they say it was material reserved for priests. Some, I think, are going to try to say it was a priestly garment itself. So I, I do, we're going to have different things. Here's another commentary. This was one of Jeremiah's action sermons. He, they call it action sermons. I'm going to call it an object lesson sermon. Okay, I don't, I, this is my own personal thing. The uh, waist cloth was a thigh-length undergarment worn next to the skin. All right? They don't necessarily connect it directly to the priest. This commentary says... Uh, the sash was probably a part of a of the a part of the priestly garments, which may, would make it especially holy. So we kind of got three ideas going on here, right? Okay, one is that it was the material like the priestly garment, but doesn't necessarily say it was a priestly garment, but it would have been very valuable. Okay. The other commentary said um, that it was just worn next to the skin. They don't really say much about it. And then this one said it was a priestly garment. Do y'all have any notes on your uh, study Bibles that offer any insight to what it possibly Okay, so everyone seems to agree. Go. Okay, right, right, okay, right. Right. Well, well, we'll see if we can figure out the right. We're gonna have to figure out the picture in a minute, okay? But so at least we kind of get an idea. So the real issue is if it's a priestly garment, we got to figure out that, does that add anything to it? And then yeah, what's the water part? Well, we'll we'll figure that out, okay? But at least we kind of got an idea, possibly what the garment is. So then, what does he say? So I got a girdle according to the Lord of the Lord and put it on my loins, and the word of the Lord came unto me. The second time. So it's almost like there was some space. Hey, go find this kind of girl. He finds it, this kind of linen garment. He gets it. He wears it. And then some, sooner or later, God then speaks again and says, do what? Take the girdle that thou hast gotten, which is upon thy loins. Arise, go to Euphrates, 
and hide it there in a hole of the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And it came to pass after many days that the Lord said unto me, Arise, go to Euphrates, take the girdle from this, which I commanded thee to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates, digged and took the girdle from the place where I had hid it. And behold, the girdle was marred and it was profitable for nothing. In other words, it had been torn or whatever had happened to it, right? Then the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Thus saith the Lord, after this manner will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. Now, let's stop right here. Okay, let's stop right here. Now, we have an object. I'm going to call it an object lesson. I don't, I don't like the action sermon. This is an object lesson sermon. Okay, now, what can we not allow ourselves to do? We've got to be too careful not to get so preoccupied with the garment, right? What's the bigger picture? The garment represents whom? Israel, right? Can we agree? Right? And then he wore the garment, hid the garment, and the garment was marred, corrupted, destroyed in some way, shape, or form, right? Okay? And so then what is he, does he not give us kind of the explanation right here? This is a picture of that he's going to mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. How is he going to do that? How are they going to be marred? They're going to be taken and, in a sense, hidden away. And then when they come out, they're not going to be the same. They're going to be marred. Right? Agreed? I think that's... Or they're going to at least be marred during that captivity. Uh, Verse 10. This evil people which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their heart and walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them, shall even be as the girdle, which is good for nothing. They're going to be basically, well, good for nothing. It's going to be destroyed. And then verse 11 is where this stops. For as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of a man, so have I caused to cleave unto me as the house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, that they might be unto me a people for my name, for a praise and for a glory of that, but they would not hear. Now this starts giving us kind of painting the picture. As the girdle, the linen garment, is worn where? Next to the skin. He likens them as they used to be near to me. Then they're going to be removed from him, in a sense, and to put what? Buried or hidden to be basically marred and destroyed. Right? Do we see that? Is that a fair? Now, let's see what the commentaries do. Right? But, hey, do we have the main picture? Everyone got the main picture? As the girdle was worn next to the skin, they were near to God as the garment is to be removed from Jeremiah and to be buried, Judah will be removed in a sense from God and placed in captivity and they will be marred. Now, are there some things in the picture that we don't understand? I think Bobby's already picked out the one that kind of jumps out. Why no water, right? Like, like, like what, what, what is that? Let's see if the commentaries even mention it. What? Okay, what did you have an idea? Right, right, because it was near the Euphrates. So I'm assuming it was, and then finally it gets wet. And it's, so, hey, in other words, put it on and keep it from being marred, 
keep it from being corrupted, and then go bury it someplace where you know it's going to be corrupted because you got the Euphrates. Right. Right. Now, let's see how all the commentaries handle it. All right, so, so you already started figuring it out. But we just, the main thing was we don't want to miss what? We don't want to miss the main point. Right. So here's what they say. This, and this, I'm going to read two commentaries from the same man that may differ because his outlines are everything. I find it hilarious that it, he writes two commentaries and they're not even the same. But that just shows you when, how when you, when you deal with the text on a Monday in July and you come back to that same text three years later in, say, November, you completely, you may see it completely differently. All right. So this was one of Jeremiah's, they call it action sermons, I disagree, object lessons. The waist cloth was a thigh-length undergarment worn next to the skin. God had brought the nation close to him, but they had defiled themselves with idols and became good for nothing. When the people saw Jeremiah buy his new garment, uh, bury his new garment under a rock in the muddy river, they knew it would ruin the garment, but they didn't realize they were uh, passing judgment on themselves. God would one day take Judah to Babylon and there he would humble the Judahites and cure them of their idolatry. The city and the temple that they were proud of would be ruined just as the prophet's garments had been ruined. But something else was involved in this action sermon. For years, the leaders of Judah had turned to Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon for help. Instead of turning to the Lord, and this help had only defiled them and made them good for nothing. In God's sight, Jeremiah was showing them that their flirting with pagan nations was only alienating them further from the Lord and that it would ultimately end in national ruin. Now, that one does not tell us exactly why not to get wet, but it's clearly implied. How is it implied? Because he was to bury it, as they said in this uh, commentary. I don't know if you heard it. He said in the, uh, hang on, where, where did he say it? In a muddy river. It was to place it under a rock in the muddy river. So in other words, they knew from the moment that it was placed. Now, I know in the King James, it sounds like not necessarily in the river, but it's definitely next to it, right? And if you bury something next to a river and the river fluctuates and coming up or above, wherever you bury it could be underwater. Oh, it says in? Does it say in? Okay. No, by. Okay, but the point is, whether it's next to it or in it, a river is going to fluctuate, and, and sometimes you can put something next to a river, and it's going to get wet. Okay, and even if you go down, the river itself, the moisture there is going to get to it. Okay, but, well, I just, I want to, no, I think it's important to at least try to understand what's going on, but I think we see that why he told not to get wet is because it, it, it can't get wet, right. Right, so, and then the, this one says this, uh, uh, the sash was probably part of the priestly garments, which would make it especially holy, as long as the people clung to God in humble obedience. He was glorified when they, defi- he, he, uh, as long as the people clung to God in obedience, he was glorified. When they defiled themselves in pride, they became ruined and useless like the sash under the rock. Too proud to repent, Judah ended up in the darkness. I think the point we can see here is that Judah 
like this garment, was at one point close to God, their rebellion, God was going to then take them from close to him and in a sense separate himself from them, putting them in captivity. They would be marred. And at some point when they would come out, when they came out, were they the same? What did they not have? They didn't have a temple. It had been destroyed, right? They obviously were, were nowhere near what they may have been at one time at their, 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 their highest point. And from that point forward, even if you think about it, even when they come out of Judah, they never really recapture much glory because even if they recaptured a little bit in the rebuilding of the temple, I think it's, it's the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple, I think it's called Zerubbabel's temple. Um, it, in fact, I think it's in Zechariah, they're told not to despise small things because some of them are looking like, this is not Solomon's temple, right? But even that, but before long, guess what happens? They're right under Roman control and then they're wiped off the face of the earth. They never really come back the way. And, in, and even in 1948, the regathering of them is nothing compared to what Israel has ever been and they still struggle. So um, they, they were marred beyond belief. Now we believe that there's a glorious future in the future because of God's electing and his mercy. But they are the marred garment. They are the marred garment. And we'll just stop right there. Instead of trying to move forward, we'll stop because then that gives us the rest of the chapter for tonight. Sounds good? All right, we'll stop right there. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for seeing how things played out in the history of Israel and Judah. Let it be obviously a warning for us about how our sin does bring about negative consequences, but we are grateful and thankful for your mercy and for your grace, not only for us, but for the future promises of Israel. Because if there are no future promises for Israel, then we would have no assurance for your promises for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,